Hello, and welcome to today's American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. My name is Scott Pryor, and I'm professor of law at the Regent University School of Law. This semester, I'm also the American Bankruptcy Institute resident scholar. If you're a follower of the ABI podcasts, you will remember my conversation with David McGrail about crowdfunding a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Today, we will look at the same topic from a different angle. Daniel Gorfine is Director of Financial Markets Policy and Legal Counsel in the Washington office of the Milken Institute. The Milken Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank that advocates using the power of capital markets to solve urgent social and economic challenges. Benjamin Miller is the founder of Fundrise. Fundrise is an investment platform for commercial real estate. It gives individuals the ability to invest directly in local properties without the transactional costs of conventional real estate equity finance. Together, Daniel and Ben wrote a short piece published in February in the Wall Street Journal, observing that between 2009 and 2010, private issues of debt and equity exceeded public issues. They went on to predict that this trend will accelerate when the Securities and Exchange Commission finally issues regulations under the Jumpstart Our Business Startups, or JOBS Act, which the President signed into law in April of 2011. Let me start today's podcast by asking Ben and Daniel why they believe the JOBS Act will accelerate issuance of private debt and equity. This is Daniel. Um, so the, the JOBS Act is, actually does mark a pretty significant change to uh, securities laws in the U.S. and will have uh, a large impact on uh, the overall private capital markets and debt and equity issuances. Uh, the way that this has historically worked with private capital markets is that there is an existing securities law exemption uh, known as Regulation D, and within that, a Rule 506 uh, um, a safe harbor provision. And what this does is it allows companies to issue uh, in private capital markets debt and equity without formally registering uh, that issuance with the SEC. Uh, Title II of the Jobs Act will go ahead and lift a ban on general solicitation of those issuances. So what that means is, is that for the first time with private placements, you'll be able to mass market or advertise those offerings uh, to the general public. At the end of the day, it will still be the case that only accredited investors can actually purchase those securities. But by expanding the, the marketing opportunities with these issuances, we anticipate that the overall uh, size of private capital markets will expand. And it, it's noteworthy that there are already, in the last couple of years, more debt and equity has been sold through private markets than through public capital markets. And we anticipate that that's only going to increase now with under Title II of the JOBS Act. Uh, Daniel, could you fill us in on the relationship of the Milken Institute to uh, this this process and this uh, potential activity? Uh, sure. Uh, th- this is Daniel. Uh, the Milken Institute uh, focuses on capital access, job creation, and improved uh, health outcomes and medical research uh, initiatives. And so two of the key pillars here being capital access and job creation, we began to explore the JOBS Act as a new mechanism to increase capital access for American companies, whether they be startups uh, or small businesses. And so as we began to uh, explore this avenue, we saw that the JOBS Act had some promising uh, features or mechanisms that could help improve capital access, especially post-financial crisis for American companies. Well, Ben, we haven't heard from you yet. Uh, what What is it that Fundrise does, and uh, can you give us some examples of uh, of your work? Well, so your your question is an apt one about uh, how will the Jobs Act affect the amount of these private private issuances in the U.S. market. 
and if you think of it from a market efficiency point of view, today under regulations uh, that allow you to, to undertake a private offering, you are not allowed to advertise. So there's that information gap where certain people, maybe your customers, maybe people who, uh, who are big fans of, of the brand, um, uh, would be an investor, would want to support a company who was in bankruptcy, and they don't know about the offering. They're not allowed to be solicited. Generally, you're only allowed to be solicited if you have a prior uh, business, basically a business relationship with the person or company raising the money. So that's a, a, a huge market inefficiency, how capital flows into a small business or a uh, company or, or a property. So um, yeah, Fundrise is a, a platform that allows investment into uh, local real estate. It's a perfect example of market efficiency where uh, when I was raising money for a real estate deal, I would raise money from uh, uh, capital sources in New York City, uh, you know, large investment funds, and they really had no relationship to the properties um, where they where they were. That the investors didn't live in those neighborhoods. They probably didn't even go to those neighborhoods. Some of them, sometimes they'd never even been to those neighborhoods that we were building in, and they were investing in. And and we couldn't raise money from the local communities because essentially it was against the law under Regulation D. Uh, that's sort of, as an economist might call that a market inefficiency. And so when you when you create it, when you eliminate that inefficiency and allow information to flow and allow people to basically quote unquote generally solicit, uh, you you will have a lot more people who get to have access to this type of investment and and. Um, that's going to allow a lot more capital flow into local real estate or into uh, local businesses. So what kind of work does Fundrise do now? In other words, have you taken advantage of any of the opportunities created by the JOBS Act uh, already? Well, the JOBS Act has not been implemented, at least the, the, the two sections that Daniel was mentioning, Title II, which is about um, accredited investors or Regulation D, the Title III the crowdfunding exemption, which allows anybody to invest. Neither of those uh, uh, sections have been implemented, and so right now we've been doing uh, two different things. One is something called Regulation A, which allows you you can file with the SEC and do it's a it's a direct public offering. It's an exemption from a registration with the um, with the SEC where you go public on New York Stock Exchange, for example, but it still lets you sell direct to the public uh, through a, a, a kind of a mini filing, if you will. And we've done that now a couple of times, and essentially you can, um, it's very similar to how crowdfunding works, except for it's uh, a very intensive legal and uh, regulatory process on the front end. But it, what it, what it, 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 sort of in layman's terms, what it did was we could go online, take out a property we had in a local neighborhood, and, and say who would like to buy shares or, or units in this property, and we quote-unquote crowdfunded uh, $325,000 from 175 people who lived in the local area. And so they became, you know, developers, landowners, property owners of uh, local real estate, which basically they never had the opportunity to do before the existence of Fundrise. And, and Scott, I, uh, this is Daniel here. I would I would jump in there and just make the point that you know, Ben and his team at Fundrise have been incredibly creative in figuring out a way 
uh, to, to structure this kind of a transaction. And as far as I know, they're the first successful equity crowdfunding model uh, in the U.S., because this is obviously taking place before uh, the JOBS Act has been formally implemented by the SEC, since they're using this uh, alternative exemption under Reg A. And so to that extent, they kind of serve right now as a laboratory or as the, the first example of what we can learn about how this process can work um, and to actually see an equity crowdfund like that work successfully is hopefully a good indicator, shows good signs that this could have an impact on uh, local businesses. Well, if the uh, current ban on uh, general solicitations for private placements is, is lifted, what, uh, what do you foresee as the means by which the broader uh, solicitations will take place? This is Daniel, and I, I think it's important to differentiate uh, two things here. So one part of the JOBS Act is, is Title III of the JOBS Act, which deals with public crowdfunding. Uh, that's a little bit more in line with what Ben was just mentioning, the ability to sell debt or equity to uh, average investors. Title II of the JOBS Act is dealing with the private capital markets and private placements, and that is targeted still, even though there will be mass marketing and general solicitation, the ultimate purchasers of those securities will still have to be the, the quote-unquote accredited investors, and those are high net worth uh, individuals. So that's going to remain intact. Now, in terms of marketing, though, you can imagine opening up the Internet and different uh, portals, essentially, that will be able to mass market these private offerings to accredited investors. Uh, there are currently a few examples of this springing up around the country there's one group uh, called ACE Portal. I believe it's the accredited capital exchange up in New York. And they're working on building exactly that, the infrastructure for a national platform um, to enable private placement issuances to be marketed and, and transacted across the entire country. So it's taking what, as Ben mentioned before, was a previously a very inefficient process of having to you know, call potential accredited investors personally you'll now be able to mass market these opportunities, which could increase liquidity and the overall pool of capital available for these private markets. Now, have there, does Title II of the JOBS Act make any changes to the definition of accredited investors? Uh, th this is Daniel. Uh, no, the Title II did not change anything with, in terms of the definition of an accredited investor. So the threshold still remains that as an individual, you have to have an annual income of $200,000 a year or more, um, or net worth of greater than $1 million if you exclude your home. For a couple, that would be income greater than $300,000, and I believe with the same uh, $1 million uh, total assets threshold, uh, accepting your, your home from that value. So the, the, overall, uh, the overall pool of accredited investors will not change, um, but as Ben and I noted in our Wall Street Journal piece, Currently, only about 3% of all accredited investors are active in these kinds of uh, private placement markets. So when you open up mass marketing or advertising of these offerings, you may see a significant number of additional investors enter. So some of these accredited investors who previously were just unaware of these opportunities or did not have access to these opportunities may now have that. Well, that's comforting, but there are still some out there who believe that the reduced uh, SEC involvement at the front end will allow fraudsters uh, greater access uh, to the market by virtue of the JOBS Act. Uh, do you have any concerns about that, and what can be done to uh, address those concerns? This has been here. So um, often that uh, sort of debate is framed around investor protection 
And if you look at the original Jobs Act, it, it actually had, for at least Title III, which is for the average investor, uh, a lot of structure to protect the, um, the investor. So you had to basically, if you're raising money using the crowdfunding exemption, had to go through a uh, broker-dealer portal or a registered FINRA, probably, probably with FINRA, a portal uh, that had basically some sort of oversight from an SEC-regulated uh, organization. So um, that's one protection. A second protection is that you're only allowed to invest uh, $2,000 a year uh, or, or the or the greater of that or 5, 5% of your um, that worth. I mean, sorry, of your annual income. So you can make $100,000 a year, you can invest $5,000 a year, you can make $50,000 a year, you can invest 2500 So you're tapped at, at, um, at essentially an, an amount that the uh, basically when Congress passed, Congress passed this law, they felt like was uh, uh, an amount that um, wasn't going to put somebody on the street if they, if they invested that and lost it. Um, I found when I, you know, I raised money from "Quote unquote," the crowd, the average investor, that um, that people, you know, you, you think within the inter- one of the things the internet is tremendous at is transparency. So I had thousands and thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands, actually tens of thousands of people, looking at our offering, talking about it, blogging about it, um, you know, putting it on Facebook. So there were so there were so many eyes on this offering that, um, the, in my mind, the likelihood of fraud. Was was minimized compared to actually what I think compared to the existing market where companies like Enron, companies uh, like WorldCom, you know, can defraud you know hundreds of billions of dollars, and and because of their because they're public, because they're so sophisticated, because they can afford to pay uh, Arthur Anderson to you know essentially produce accounting that that you know, sort of essentially covers for their mistakes. Uh, People lost far more money at things than is possible. Crowdfund. So I, I, I actually see the investor protection to be something um, of a red herring for the moment, where it's, uh, it's bogged down the implementation of these these regs, where instead of them being put out into the market and and, and seeing how they perform and then adjusting and the regs to real market realities, not what what people think is going to happen. But, um, you end up having them not implemented at all, implemented, you know, probably a year or two after their deadlines. So it's um, it, it's a good concern, it's a valid concern, it, it, but I think it really was addressed by Congress in the first place, and um, and we're, I think it would be better off letting the market work for a while and then coming back and revising them if it turned out to be, you know, too open or or needing some sort of adjustment. And this is Daniel. I, I would add to that. I mean, I agree with Ben that we, in Title III of the Jobs Act, there's relatively limited downside risk for individual investors because of those investment caps. And as Ben also mentioned, there are already a lot of baked-in disclosures that are going to be required uh, through the Jobs Act itself. Um, so, you know, the idea there being to make sure that investors have enough information to make sound decisions. And it's absolutely true that there's a phenomenon that I think regulators need to take into account when they uh, issue these rules and regulations is that social media and the use of the internet and the way people are communicating is creating another filter or another level of due diligence. So there's already with the existing non-financial return models out there, and I'm talking about Indiegogo or Kickstarter, 
when when ventures post on those uh, platforms or portals and try to raise money through those sites, if the entrepreneur or the project lead goes dark, as they call it, or goes silent and stops communicating with the crowd, uh, the crowd will bombard that person, and they'll use different blogs and, and, and boards, essentially, to communicate the fact that that, that um, entrepreneur or project lead has disappeared effectively. So you do have this other built-in form of protection there um, uh, through these crowdfunding sites. Now, I, I would say, though, that when we talk about Title II, and so going back now to accredited investors and the ability to do these private placements, um, currently, Reg D and Rule 506 issuances are, are, are largely unregulated, so there's very little that is actually required. Because we're going to see, I believe, an increase in the number of, um, of, I would say that maybe we're assuming that all accredited investors are sophisticated, or at least what, that's what the SEC presumes. I think many young professionals, or potentially the elderly, who are attracted by these advertisements for these private placements may um, enter into these transactions. And I would like to see there be some kind of baseline disclosure requirement, nothing overly onerous, um, but just require that with these private issuances there be enough information disclosed to, again, allow investors to make sound investment decisions. So I think that we might see something in the Title II space um, that could be a, a minimized version of what's currently required in terms of disclosures through Title III. Well, we've already alluded to the phenomenon that the, the Jobs Act uh, was signed by the president uh, April 2011. Uh, we still have not seen uh, final SEC regulations. Uh, what seems to be holding up the SEC in this process? Now, this has been uh, – the SEC was put in a difficult position – because they, unfortunately, they were given uh, an enormous amount to execute, not including not just the uh, Jobs Act, but also Dodd-Frank. Uh, there's a, a whole pipeline of rulemaking they have to do today. And, um, and I believe that the SEC is underfunded. So it, the SEC could be self-funded. They're constantly getting settlements from uh, the uh, you know, financial industry. And those settlements, actually those payments go to the uh, general treasury, they don't actually go to fund the SEC. And so, um, uh, on one hand, I mean, the SEC has basically uh, been given an enormous uh, undertaking, Herculean undertaking, and not given the resources really to, to do it. Uh, on the other hand, I think that um, the there's a, a kind of a... When you come from a top-down approach, which is how government works, where... Essentially, you, you try to regulate how things are going to work, how markets will work before they actually even exist. Um, it, you can end up sort of swimming in circles, trying to imagine all the possibilities, all the downsides, all the things that could be problems. I think I think almost think of the Maginot Line, you know, where you you imagine that you know this is the where the problems will come from. The problems will come directly from the you know from the West, and instead they go around the Maginot Line. Find ways to 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 get at you know. Uh, uh, I mean, since we continue to continue with the analogy, you know, they, you really can't project how these things are going to play out. And so, um, as you see, that though has been bogged down in trying to uh, address all the comments they got from the public and from some of the consumer advocacy groups. And in doing so, I think that they um, aren't giving enough credit to technology to to um, markets to actually, you know, solve some of these things better than 
the way, the way a regulatory agency might approach it. Yeah. And this is Daniel. I, uh, I, I agree with that. And, I, you know, look, I think the SEC is trying to get this right, but I agree that they should take a far more entrepreneurial approach with this. I mean, this is a rapidly developing market, and it'll take some time before we know exactly what directions it's going to take. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, hopefully the SEC is looking at two things right now in terms of real-world examples of crowdfunding. Number one, uh, we do see examples of legal securities crowdfunding uh, occurring overseas. So, for example, in the U.K., there are already existing debt and equity securities crowdfunding sites. And thus far, we've seen very little evidence um, of fraud. And, in fact, through the debt funding uh, crowdfunding site, Funding Circle, the default rates there are hovering around 3%, which is uh, lower than the, the default rates on SBA guaranteed loans. So, um, so far, the results are fairly promising. And then I would also say even domestically with the non-financial return crowdfunding model, Kickstarter and Indiegogo are raising hundreds of millions of dollars for projects. And while you will absolutely hear stories about, you know, I would, it, it's hard to draw the line at fraud or just failed projects. Um, and while there are certainly examples of those in general, the, the fraud rate seems to be incredibly low. I know Indiegogo has stated that there has been no fraud on their platform, and that's because they're using algorithms uh, internally to make sure that they're able to ferret out potential fraud. So I think that goes to, to Ben's point that this is a rapidly evolving market, and a lot of these sites are doing things um, in order to police their own sites, much the way that eBay does. And I think people were concerned when the eBay marketplace sprang up, but it's in the platform's best interest to make sure that they police their site, um, because as soon as there are some high-profile failures or defaults or frauds, it could potentially uh, crush that platform. I'd like to actually mention one more thing. This has been, I, um, I, I like to put it in perspective. I think if they, people talk about crowdfunding over the next five years, Growing to thirty billion dollars, uh, which would be thirty million dollars a year is an enormous amount. It's the entire, um, it's the size of the entire venture fund industry is thirty billion dollars a year. So that's a, obviously a lot of money flowing, new money flowing into small business and you know small properties and small developments. Um, but put in perspective of you know, WorldCom and and Ron were two or three hundred billion dollars of fraud. You know AIG and Fannie Mae and Lehman Brothers and and um, and Bear Stearns, I mean, the list goes on. Tyco, I mean, trillions of dollars of fraud in the existing system. And so to sort of to, to bog down in crowdfunding, I think it, it, it takes it out of essentially you're comparing it to an ideal that doesn't exist when in reality the markets today are, are in need of reform and that I think crowdfunding will bring uh, a new kind of uh, paradigm into fundraising the idea of using internet, the idea of using sort of information flow technology to raise capital, it would really will bring a sort of new blood, new new um, uh, life to a financial industry that, in general, uh, I think hasn't been working very well. So um, there may be some risks, there may be some downsides in investor protection, but the upsides far outweigh them, and that we are better off actually moving forward than than sort of locked in a, in a status quo. Well, I've wondered, too, if, uh, speaking here of the uh, Title III, the uh, crowdfunding side of things, if the uh, investment crowdfunding might crowd out the non-financial return crowdfunding field. Do you think it's likely that the uh, platforms that do the non-financial return crowdfunding will branch out to the investment side, or will the two systems operate uh, 
separate and uh, distinct? This is Daniel. Uh, you know, it, it, that's, a, that's an open question. I've, I've wondered the same, whether offering financial return could, to a certain extent, crowd out non-financial return models. Uh, though I do think that what motivates a lot of crowdfunding investors or donors or contributors, it, it goes beyond just pure financial returns. So the reality is, under Title III of the JOBS Act, uh, these are going to be relatively small issuances. The, the maximum cap that a company can raise is a million dollars. So you're not necessarily going to be looking at huge financial return for investors. If you're thinking about a local cupcake shop, um, you know, any kind of a return on an investment would be valuable. But you're, my guess is you're going to get a local group of investors that also enjoy the product from that cupcake shop, and they want to see that place succeed. So part of the reason that people will be investing is going to go beyond pure financial return. And I think that there are going to be many examples then where the financial return piece of it is not necessary. And for a lot of entrepreneurs who are trying to raise relatively small sums of money, the cost of compliance, even under Title III um, uh, of the JOBS Act, may be so great that it's better to go ahead if you're trying to raise just $25,000, $50,000. You may be better suited doing that through a non-financial return uh, model, and there may be plenty of, of supply uh, to, to satisfy your demand for capital through that model. So I don't necessarily think that this is going to mean the end of non-financial return crowdfunding. I think it's going to, uh, we're going to see it sort out across different types of projects um, and different sizes of capital raises. This is Ben. I, I, I want to just add a point and just dovetail what Daniel's saying. I think, especially having done, um, to raise money online for uh, equity crowdfunding, and, and we've done things where we offered perks and then we've also uh, done offerings where we haven't offered any perks. We just offered pure financial. Um, and there's, and there's, I think there's, for one, you know, our average investment was uh, $2,000 per person, and we capped the amount people could invest at $10,000 uh, just because we wanted to um, have it be broadly owned, broadly held. So, uh, which is, would be essentially every, almost everybody who invested with us were maxed out uh, in one investment. So, so um, you know, when people start investing financially, uh, you know, it, it, people end up writing much larger checks than they do when they're doing donation-based. Donation-based, often people are writing checks $20, $30. And the average in, for Kickstarter, which is the largest uh, donation-based crowdfunding site, I think the average amount raised per small business is something like, or per, per offering is something like $6,500. So it's, it's very, very small amounts, amounts that would sort of not, no means justify doing a real equity raise. And, um, and there's, uh, you know, something like 18 of, uh, of Kickstarter's, uh, company, you know, companies that raised money online last year raised more than, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. So, and I, and I look at what we had to do to raise this money and what it, what it entails having so many investors and the legal implications. It really doesn't make sense to you start raising you know, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 before you would do this. So there's a segmentation in the market that I think is going to um, change, will we'll, we'll, we'll address this question, and you'll have different people funding different things, and there's a lot of room in the space. I mean, the investment industry in general, multi-trillion dollar industry, Kickstarter raised last year, you know, a couple hundred million dollars. So there's, you know, there's an enormous amount of room for uh, everybody uh, for a long time. Yeah, this is Daniel, and just uh, what, what, building off of that point um, that Ben just made, I also think you're going to see some of the non-financial return platforms 
offer different options for different stages of some of these companies. So you could envision an Indiegogo um, continuing to offer the non-financial return model, but maybe that's where a company goes to do some product validation or to test w- and market what they're, what they're working on. So what I'm envisioning there is if they need ten, fifteen thousand dollars uh, to, to work on a prototype, they may be able to get that through the non-financial return model through Indiegogo. But then when they want to come back uh, later on and take on a significantly larger investment, maybe then they can either continue to try to crowdfund. Uh, maybe they go to an angel investor, but they can look and say, "We had, you know, one thousand or two thousand people who were willing to give us money because they so much liked this concept." And that's got a lot of power. That's product validation. That's free marketing right there. So there's a lot of different reasons why that model could kind of fit nicely within a, a um, capital raising uh, strategy for a company. Well, once the, we do have the, the regulations, and now turning back to the Title II, um, who's going to be uh, putting this together? In other words, I'm wondering about whether the uh, social enterprise-oriented platforms, uh, such as uh, Fundrise, and uh, will be doing this, or will the, uh, the the current model, the investment banks and uh, brokers, be involved in uh, uh, marketing to uh, the general solicitations? So this has been so. I think that everybody is going to end up doing this. Uh, it's going to become a necessity and the norm in the financial industry, uh, and I and and you already see it happening. Where where Fundrise, you know, our minimum investments have been hundred dollars. Thousand dollars, five thousand dollars. Well, we've done twenty-five thousand dollars. In general, our, our minimums are accessible to uh, most everybody. Uh, Carlisle Group, which is one of the largest private equity funds in the country, recently um, lowered their minimum investment for a, a fund they're raising to fifty thousand dollars, and I think it was from I think a million. So. Uh, what that means is, and I know that David Rubenstein is, has been thinking about and focused on uh, crowdfunding. He's the um, managing partner, managing director of Carlisle. So I know he's been looking at crowdfunding, and, it, and there's no doubt in my mind that when he lowered the minimum to $50,000, he did that in anticipation of the changing regs. So um, the idea that, um, you, you know, that it's almost like, uh, uh, if you remember, pharmaceuticals, couldn't advertise their wares on television until uh, I don't remember 15 years ago, and and now um, every pharmaceutical advertises their wares on television. I mean, I have advertising it feels like it's from pharmaceutical companies. So, and I think that uh, sort of uh, will happen to some extent in the financial industry. People are going to have to um, generally solicit, raise money, have a bigger public brand if they're going to be an active player in the um, investment world. Yeah, this is Daniel, and uh, there's no doubt that large financial institutions are going to try to step into this space. I mean, and if we think about it, if they're ultimately targeting accredited investors, then who better to know who the accredited investors are out there than these large financial institutions um, who may be going and and offering opportunities to their client base? Um, You know, and I would also say even more broadly speaking, as, as Ben mentioned earlier, that when you look at crowdfunding, whether it's under Title II or Title III, a lot of this has to do with just leveraging the Internet and technology um, in order to change the way that capital flows. And so we've seen some examples. I mean, ABN AMRO, a large European bank, has created a, a, a seed platform, crowdfunding platform over in the Netherlands. And it looks like they're testing the waters um, on this front. 
so I do think we're going to see this be a fairly large initiative across both financial institutions as well as some of the platforms that we've already seen springing up recently. I know this is bad. Right now, my general perception is that people feel like crowdfunding is a niche. It's a term to describe a very specific thing people do, which is raise money on the Internet for a project, whether real estate, in our case, or small business. But I think that, you know, five, ten years from now, crowdfunding or some other name for it will, will mean something much broader. Uh, and it's almost like, you know, when blogs were invented, people saw that as kind of a niche. But now, essentially, the way people consume uh, news essentially put every newspaper in jeopardy. And and no one thinks of a blog or, or the way people consume news as narrowly as they did in the beginning when, when blogs were invented. But now how information flows, how it gets produced, and how it gets consumed has transformed as a result of the Internet. So I think the Internet is going to do something similar to the financial industry that did to media, that did to e-commerce, and did to travel agents. I mean, it slowly but surely eats up every industry and forces it to change its, its uh, modus operandi. Yeah, and this, this is Daniel. I mean, there's there's no question this is part of an ongoing evolution, and I guess you could put it in the, the general bucket of uh, democratization of finance, because if you think just a few decades ago when we first saw the first discount uh, investment brokerage models, what was that? It was essentially Charles Schwab using the Internet and information technology to access more potential uh, investors and customers uh, at, at lower cost through the Internet. And as I see it, crowdfunding and this, this step forward is just furthering that process, the process of decentralization and uh, disintermediation. Uh, how might uh, crowdfunding uh, intersect with bankruptcy? I do think bankruptcy is an interesting um, situation for crowdfunding. I, I, I've dealt with, um, you know, workouts have been hired by banks to deal with, you know, essentially bankrupt properties and, um, and one of the problems with crowdfunding is that it's very slow. You know, if I go raise money from an investment fund, uh, they have the money on hand, basically, right? They've raised it already. And so they can, once they've done the underwriting, they can write a check immediately. Um, and, and crowdfunding, you basically have to raise the money um, from the public, and, and, and that can take some time, uh, especially if you're talking about a lot of money. So why I think that could lend itself to, to bankruptcy is bankruptcy is a, a very slow process. And often a bankrupt property, if you take, a bank, if you take real estate, uh, has an enormous effect on a local neighborhood. You know, a bankrupt property can, um, can, 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 can ruin a neighborhood. It can basically depress property values. It has a, a deleterious effect on um, government uh, tax intake. And so uh, there are, there's a lot of reasons why a, a community, in the case of real estate, would, would want to come in and fund a, uh, a property out of bankruptcy, where today basically it's not, it's not feasible. So I think that crowdfunding in a sort of bankruptcy context has a lot of applicability. What else could be done to make uh, the issuance of public debt and equity uh, more efficient and uh, less expensive? So this is Daniel. Um, yeah, so as we've discussed so far, I mean, one of the, one of the greatest uh, obvious costs of public market participation is just the cost of registration with the SEC. And then there are 
ongoing compliance costs for all uh, publicly traded companies. So those costs are fairly significant. You also have issues related to shareholder uh, lawsuits, increased scrutiny from the public, and we've also seen recently that public issuances have to be of a certain size to even gain the attention of some of the larger institutional investors. And then finally, you know, we saw with Facebook recently that there's potential branding issues. If you go public and it doesn't go well, what does that do to the overall brand? So, you know, regulators and lawmakers need to be thinking about what they can continue to do to make public markets competitive. Uh, Title I of the JOBS Act actually takes a step in that direction. It, it creates a, um, a postponement of certain regulations and, and compliance requirements from Sarbanes-Oxley for certain smaller uh, IPOs that are below a $1 billion threshold. And so that's intended to decrease the costs of going public for these small companies. And so far, that's had some, uh, some decent success. But I think overall, what would be interesting is for regulators and lawmakers to look at the success of private capital markets and figure out what are the kinds of disclosures that private markets are requiring. Um, you know, investors don't, especially sophisticated institutional investors, don't step into these transactions without requiring certain disclosures. But it would be interesting to look and see what are those disclosures, and is there anything we can do to streamline or cut down on the overall costs of public um, regulations and the disclosures that are required? And that could be a work in progress, but I certainly think that we can learn something from the success of private capital markets. Until our next podcast, this is Scott Pryor on behalf of the American Bankruptcy Institute.